Welcome to Talk Save, Culture Talks, the podcast of Paradisec, the Pacific and Regional Archive for Digital Sources in Endangered Cultures. I'm Jody Kell. And I'm Stephen Gagao. These are conversations with people who have personal and cultural connections to the languages and music in our archive. Sinaoboro is an Austronesian language of Papua New Guinea with approximately 15,000 speakers. It is mainly spoken in the Rigo district, one of the four districts that make up the central province, stretching from the coast up into the Owen Stanley Ranges. As it is only about 100 kilometers southeast of Port Moresby, many people commute there for work, recreation, and to live. This has contributed to socio-economic changes that have influenced language use and cultural practices. This makes heritage recordings valuable as a way of reconnecting to the language and culture of the region. Paradisec has three collections that contain items pertaining to the Sinogoro language, AC1, TD1 and MR1. Arthur Capel was an Australian linguist and ethnographer who was a reader in Oceanic Studies at the University of Sydney between 1945 to 1962. He spent much time collecting, recording and documenting Indigenous Australian languages and endangered languages of the Asia-Pacific region. Sometimes his recordings are the only surviving record of languages dating as far back as the 1920s. Paradisec holds a large collection of digitised recordings in AC1 that we began digitising in 2004. Arthur Capel's materials are also held at the Australian National University, the Pacific Manuscripts Bureau, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies and the National Library of Australia. Tom Dutton was a senior fellow in the Research School of Pacific and Asian Studies at the Australian National University. He began as a research fellow in linguistics in 1969 and was promoted to senior fellow before retiring in 1997. Prior to taking up linguistics, Tom was an education officer in the administration of Papua New Guinea. TD1 is his collection of audio recordings from a number of languages of Papua New Guinea and Australia. Malcolm Ross is an Australian linguist who is an Emeritus Professor of Linguistics at the Australian National University. He is best known for his work on Austronesian and Papuan languages, historical linguistics and language contact. Malcolm served as the Principal of Goroka Teachers College in PNG from 1980 to 1982, during which time he became interested in local languages and began to collect data on them focusing on word lists and grammatical structures. Like AC1 and TD1, the collection MR1 covers a wide range of languages from Papua New Guinea. In this episode, we interview Sinagoro speaker 
Eileen Gobu Bobone and Australian linguist Matt Carroll about these three collections. Eileen originates from the Veghofi clan of Kualemurubu village in the Rigo district. She is currently a PhD candidate with the Department of Pacific Affairs at ANU. Her research concerns women's political representation in the public domain, focusing on voter behaviors and attitudes towards female candidates in the Rigo district. Matt is a postdoctoral fellow at the ARC Center of Excellence for the Dynamics of Language at ANU. He did his PhD research on the Yay language of West Papua. In 2020, Eileen worked with Matt on the ANU undergraduate course, Field Methods in Linguistics. In this course, students work under guidance with a native speaker, learning how to analyse their language from scratch, preparing and archiving descriptive materials, and writing papers on aspects of the grammar. Due to COVID-19 restrictions, the course was run entirely online, the first virtual field methods course. As well as discussing the Sinalgoro language recordings, you will hear Eileen and Matt talk about their experiences with this intensive six-week course, one as a lecturer and one as a language speaker, sharing their perspectives on linguistic field methods. The music for this episode is a song called Igolo Vavine by Rabbi Gameni, released by CHM Supersounds from Papua New Guinea and the South Pacific region. Good morning. Welcome to Toxave Culture Talks podcast. Uh, we're going to be looking at um, collections of Sinalgoro language held in Paradisic. And we're here at um, ANU in the ARC, Centre of Excellence for the Dynamics of Language. Welcome Eileen and Matt. And we might uh, ask you to um, give a brief introduction of yourselves. Boi boi namona. Our good to Eileen Bobone, Auto Kualimurubu Vavinegu, ANUI Asukuredi. I am Eileen, Eileen Bobone. I'm from Kualimurubu and I am a student at ANU. Uh, hi, I'm Matt Carroll. I'm a, a postdoctoral fellow here at the ANU in the, in the centre and I was the course convener for uh, Field Methods in Linguistics this year, which is how I got to know uh, Eileen and Sinagora. So Matt, we might just start. Can you give a brief description of this field methods course and the way that it ended up being online? Yeah, sure. At the ANU here, we're pretty well known for in the linguistics department uh, for our field work, typically on small languages of the region. And so we always try and run this field methods class every year. It's a very big part of the identity of linguistics here at the ANU. However, this year with COVID, we faced a new challenge with having to do things remotely. And typically the way the language course normally works, we bring in a speaker or speakers from a single language of the region who, who the students haven't, haven't had any experience with. And we set the students the task of recording, documenting and trying to take apart and understand the language that they hopefully, well, for the most part, have never had any experience with before. However, this year we didn't have we couldn't have everybody in the same place, so we, we took it online. Uh, we had Eileen here in Canberra set up with a, a little recording studio and students all coming in from Zoom from all over the place. So it was a, a very unique situation this year, doing it remotely, which provided a lot of sort of interesting challenges, but sort of very relevant going forward since we're trying mm. to really, you know, a lot of things are moving online. Uh, we learned a lot about, you know, what makes a good recording 
in terms of like both clarity but also naturalism, naturalistic mm. stuff too, mm. right? And, mm. uh, um, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this is aware of how unnatural, how awkward <laughs> and how different things are by doing things on Zoom <laughs> rather than doing things face-to-face. Mm. Uh, mm. And the class definitely brought up some of those. But I think we also managed to really do well mm. in avoiding, you know, I think we still, things were pretty smooth, relatively smooth. I mean, I'm sure Eileen can, maybe from Eileen's <laughs> perspective, it was more difficult than it was from mine. Um, how, did, how did you find your role in the course, Eileen? Because you're here studying mm. your own PhD. Mm. And then suddenly you're involved in this field methods course because of your language. How did you find that role? And then also working on Zoom, what do you think was um, positive and what were the difficulties? I'll start with the difficulties because that's easier (laughs) to remember. (laughs) Plenty of them. (laughs) Plenty. I just found it so unnatural to be sitting in front of the camera and then talking to the camera and... It helps when you're able to move around and move your hands. Mm. That kind of, if you're stuck, then that helps you. And you just sitting is very, very difficult. And at, at the end of every every session, I feel so exhausted mm. because I am putting so much energy into, okay, thinking about my language, making sure that I am being fair to my language, that I am not misleading uh, my the students and... I am doing justice to my language. And so having to think about all of those things took out so much from me. It just took out so much for for me. So on weekends, I I, I really didn't understand why I was so tired. Mm -hmm. But it was because I was, it's almost like you're putting up an act. But the good thing about the course, you speak the language and you don't take notice of it. And then suddenly I had to take note of how I was saying things and whether I was saying them correctly or not. And so that began to make me appreciate my own language, and then I began to see that, okay, there are other parts of Sinaloro people. I I say my R, and they say, in place of the R, they say L. So who is correct when stories or stories history says that we all came from the same place? Mm. So how is it that I'm saying R and they're saying L? And are those differences regional, the ones between the R and the L? My Sinagoro is different from the Balawaya Sinagoro, and theirs is different from the Sinavai Sinagoro, and then their Sinagoro is different from um, the uh, the Koyaris who had to take on Sinagoro because they came down to be with us. I'll just put some perspective on, on, on language and how it evolves or changes. Dialects are very important. We've got, you know, Papua New Guinea's got over 850 languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see the challenge and diversity in that. Um, this actually has spilled over to the national language, which is Tokpisina. And that in the, the impact of these dialects actually has, has filtered into Tokpisina. And that is the use of R and use of L. Mm-hmm. You know, what's normally an R in some parts of the country, they'll say L. I think what Eileen is talking about is, is, is the traditional dialects from the languages have kind of also spilled into the national language of Tokpisin. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we don't, like I think Eileen's point before is mm. we use language, we never really, we're not really conscious of yes. it. And then mm. taking the effort to really think about it, suddenly all of this stuff that just yeah. we take for granted yeah. is so... Mm. And I think one of those is variation. Like even in English, 
There's variation between people who say their ours or don't say their ours, and mm -hmm. we don't say our ours. Variation is just a central part of language. Like with the students, what kind of stories were they looking for from you? Were you directing the stories or were they asking you to talk mm -hmm. about things? There were some who said, okay, tell us a story. And then so I decided to tell a legend about how the cascas came into being. And that was nice because then I just told the legend as my grandmother told it. Mm. Yeah. And then there were those that came with pictures and they told me, okay, these are pictures, put a story to it. Now that became difficult. Mm. Yeah, that became difficult for me because then I ended up making so many mistakes because I'm seeing a picture and then what do I use? Do I say it as I'm seeing it? So I do I use the present tense? And then you see, I'm like <laughs> half the time using present and then past and then I'm thinking, no, I'm making a mistake and then... Yeah, that kind of thing. So I got caught up, especially in the uh, the, the picture stories. Mm. And then when two students told me about me talking about my place and, you know, the villages around, that again became difficult for me. Mm. Because then I, you know, my village in relation to those four villages, you know, how far are they, you know, and that kind of thing also got me so confused because you have to think about details. Mm. And when you don't have the details, then it becomes a struggle. Yeah, it's tough too. I mean, the, yeah. the students, uh, undergraduate students for the most part here at the ANU, without any particular knowledge of PNG or mm. Melanesian culture or the, mm. the, even the geography. And so yes. there's no context for them too. So True. it's hard, you know, they don't know the right questions to ask. And, yeah. and it's very much a learning experience for them too. Mm. I mean, I like the students just to, it's yeah. unfortunate for them to, just, <laughs> no, to make were, mistakes and to just to try lovely. and to see they what works lovely, and what yeah. doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting you're talking about being exhausted. It's good to remind ourselves as researchers, you know, the energy it takes well, mm -hmm. much, to yeah. share mm -hmm. knowledge. Part of it was we ran the class intensive, so we did it over, normally it would be spread over a whole semester, mm -hmm. but we, yeah. for various reasons, we crammed it into a month. And so we met every day. Yeah. You worked Eileen really hard, we, didn't you, Matt? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Um, yeah, right? I think it's much more true to how it works when you go, you know, you go, you know, if you're going to go all the way to Kuala Mubulu mm -hmm. and work with people in the village, mm -hmm. you might only be able to be there for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. You want to work, you want to spend as much time working as mm -hmm. possible. You really want to learn the language. So you get up every day. And you work with people. Yeah. Unfortunately, fortunately, if you were if you mm. were in Kuala Mavuru, you would have a, a bunch of people to work with, right? And so mm. you wouldn't be making one person, especially. Mm. <laughs> so we might move on to some of the recordings yeah. that we have in the collection and just get your thoughts on the Sinagora materials we do have. Generally, for the 14, what are your general reflections? The stories, like I mentioned before, the stories that were read by the people there, the stories were very, very stilted. Like there was no feeling in them because it's almost like the people, uh, the men who were reading were reading word for word. And so I kind of gathered that, okay, these probably stories were written by someone else and they were just reading it. Listen now to this excerpt from AC1 Collection. The speaker sounds a bit stiff and unnatural. The story of the boys and the coconuts. Ji dok dok atatana kanu angin atrunginu pan kapat. Yagachi alicep 
Alasi nwangangin magalatiya magaadinu atali biyagal sintromasin. Dokdok, deluga are nganinu. Manman dokdok, there were some parts in the stories where I couldn't figure out who exactly, what were the relationships of the of the actors in those stories because they start off very general and then suddenly the uh, they're brothers and then they meet someone else and then so you know that kind of constantly threw me off because then I was trying to figure out all the relationships in all the boys in these stories. I just felt that the stories were very, there was no feeling in the, yeah. there was no connection of the story with the reader, you mm. know. So, uh, like, the conclusion I drew was that, okay, this is a non Sinawaro speaker wrote this, and the Sinawaro person is reading it. This is the recording of a word list from the MR1 collection that Eileen comments on. It is in Hula, a neighboring language to Sinagoro. Yamana. His nose. Iruna. His ear. Yakeana. His mouth. Yamuruna. His tongue. Yamaina. His tooth. Yaruana. His neck. Yaigona. His hand. Yagimana. Her breast. Yalana. His belly. Yainagena. His leg. Yaagena. His skin. There were recordings where parts of the body, and then the uh, record. Uh, the the researcher would say, "Okay, so how do you say his hand, his leg, his head, his so forth and so on?" Until when it would come to the breast, it was like hair breast, and so I was thinking, <laughs> <laughs> "Okay, so how come? Why can't you just say?" His, his breast. But then I asked an Australian friend here and she said, oh, men have chests. And I'm like, okay, so the chicken have breasts, but men have chests. Yes. And so, and <laughs> sorry about that. And what are the value of word lists? Uh, they have value for, for my people. I mean, it looks like language is eventually going to disappear because people in my, uh, kids in my village are beginning to speak pidgin. So if they're going to be speaking pidgin now, that would be valuable for us because you don't want to. I mean, when you lose those type of things, you also lose your identity. Mm. And that is sad, very, very sad. I'm yeah. just saying linguistically, you did up the word list vocabulary and the lexicon. I'm just trying to place my head around the word, the linguistic approach mm. to yeah. the impact on other yes. fields or disciplines. Well, I mean, that's so that's an interesting way of of framing it. So, I mean, one of the big things that word lists are used for in linguistics, I mean, besides just as a resource for understanding broader texts, which are made up of words, obviously, but, um, I mean, in recent times, word lists are feeding into uh, language family reconstruction, so working out phylogenies, working out the, the history of languages and therefore people, so the relationship between two languages uh, and inferring sort of you know, phylogenetic trees, like like family trees that tell you, okay, well, these languages are related to this closely and this one is more distantly related and they all probably descend from some common ancestor. Yeah, I saw on the SIL language map. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that Sinagoro is a, in the Rigo district, is a, it's got a bigger coverage area. Mm. Then next to it is like Hula on the coast yeah. down south and mm. there's um, uh, Kiapara, Kiapara, which yeah. is on the eastern side. Mm. So... I'm I'm sure this these are the inter 
relations and maybe in the marriages yeah. they all kind of blend in and that, that's, that's all but this dialects within mm. that language so mm. yeah so out of the 14 selected recordings um, and I think you you were quite passionate about two stories that are relating to marriage yeah. culture from two different parts of Papua New Guinea one like being Sepik and one Sinagoro. Um, I'm just trying to lead you to, to that particular item because I think uh, we can generate some discussions around gender-based issues that uh, I think that's something that aligns to even your PhD. Can you reflect on, and that's TD1M003A? Uh, so the first story comes from Sepik, and this is um, an account given by Raga Kopi, yeah, a patrol officer. And so he was saying that in Sipik, uh, men could marry when they had gray hair and that if they wanted this particular girl, that baby girl that was born, they'd go and tell the parents of the girl that they wanted this, uh, uh, this was their wife. And so he goes on to say that when the child began to walk, then the parents gave the child away to the men. And then he took care of her, and when she was old enough, then they got married. He married her, and then because he was older, if he died, then his brother just took on, married the, the widow. And then for, for us, um, he was saying, for his part of Rigo in Balawaya, he said that if a, a, a man liked a girl, then he'd just go to the parents of the girl and then say that he wanted the uh, the daughter and then so what he would do was constantly every time he went to the garden or he went hunting and anything and everything that he found he'd share with his family until there came a time when he married her they got married and then in my part of Rigo uh, of Sinawaro if uh, if uh, if parents found out that their son was going out with this particular girl, they'd go and tell, visit the home and say we, they wanted this girl. And then so that uh, what they would do was just constantly, again, exchange food. This is like arranged marriages. Most marriages were arranged. Mm. So it was more like alliances, you forming alliances with mm. families or clans. When a woman, when a girl began to show, like her breasts came out, and when she began to menstruate, the father removes himself from disciplining the daughter. So mm. the daughter's education comes solely from the mother. One time I was going to go to study, at, to do my grade 11 and 12 in the Highlands, and when my, my father told the men in uh, his uncles that I, he was going to send me off, and they told him, don't let her go, she is a woman. But my father said, I'm going to send her away and trust uh, she's well, you know, prepared to go outside. And when I was leaving, my father told me, tie the gaskets around your waist tight. So it's like metaphorically, I'm not wearing a gasket, but he just said that gasket tight, tight, mm. which meant that I, you know, I can't go and live a loose life outside there because if I'm, whatever I do, my mother and my grandmother also, they told me, you are going there. You're not Eileen now going out of this village, but you are now Kualimurubu. Mm. Anything and everything that you do outside there is not going to be a reflection of your father, your mother, but it's going to be a reflection of your village. And so I went out of that village knowing that I am the representative of my village. So whatever good or whatever bad I come up with is going to be a reflection of 
my village. Mm. Well, I do not know about the rest of Papua New Guinea, but the explanation for my place, my for the Sinaguro people is, the man carried his banana, his spear, and he walked ahead, and the woman walked behind. And what happened was, when she walked behind, she lifted the back of her grass get up, and then she bared her bottom to, to outside, because the naked body of a woman is already, according to men from my village, it is already magic. Anyone who's carrying around charms of any kind, magic of any kind, those things become powerless in the presence of a woman's naked body. And so that's what she would do. She'd just lift her skirt up, and then the bottom is bare. And then when she's going into the village, then she would drop that. Mm. Yeah. This story is from the TD1 collection about marriage for the people of Balawaya from a man's perspective. I, Balawaya, Gemai, Begarawa, Kilaria, Akilaini. I am a Sibarai. I. When we want a woman, we go and leave gifts with the parents of the girl. We tell them our intentions. If the parents say yes, every time we find something, we bring it to her house. For one whole year, that is what we do. At the end of that period, they give us the woman. Then we cook, her parents cook, and they bring it to us. When all this is over, we do the big payment where we put together food, money, and pigs. When a boy is born, the father and mother will dress the child up when he's old, and they bring this boy with gifts to the brothers of the wife. We will not fight each other because of that woman. Our friendship will be forever. Bride price, my people, when we pay bride price, the groom pays bride price, but the bride's people repay that. So we, we, we call it Varavoy. Um, we say Dauga to. We're going to repay the bride price at that time. We always repay. And then when um, the woman, when we send our, our daughter to, the, to have her, her, the new family, then she goes to them with, uh, with seeds, yam seeds, when she, she goes. So your bride price being paid means you also, as a woman, have a higher status. Mm. Yeah, you have status. Very complex, isn't it? Yes, thank you. <laughs> so today, what goes on now? Is this system still running today in some way? Okay, when we look at bride price, I think now it's a matter of white goods, the washing machine, rice cookers, toast, scrapers, and it's like competition. The higher you give, the more, you know, you can hit your breast, the bros. <laughs> you can hit your chest and say, me man, I'm a man. So I think the blending of the traditional, you know, 
uh, customary sort of uh, ways mm. to modern uh, materialism. Yeah. It's pushed the value of bride price up right. and, and the status of like you know who you are in in the community. Yeah, plus, so, plus yeah. women are now educated and mm. having that also yeah. is one contributing factor to how much families of men give because the woman is so educated then. Mm. Oh, so they see education as a positive, also you know, positive, part of yeah. the yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah, maybe. I'm now talking all the time it's inaugural people I'm talking about, so I'm of hoping, course. you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not speaking on behalf of Papua New Guinea. That's really interesting, isn't it? And these stories, because these stories, I think, were from the 60s, they were recorded. Yeah, 1965, like, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so we, we don't have um, these marri arranged marriages anymore. Okay. People just marry whoever they want. Okay, okay just a question, Ms. Papua New Guinea. Sure. Um, what's the position of educated, uh, does the community in Sinagoro embrace educated Sinagoro women? Yes. Yeah. You see, um, so education is a plus. Mm. And with the high cost of living today, you need everybody to be working in order to buy your rice and your tin fish. Otherwise, you're going to live on borrowed money and you're just that vicious cycle of constantly paying back credits, paying mm. no savings. So if a woman is working, more the better if she has a, you know, a, a status and position to come with that because position and status means more money coming in to the family. And do you think, you know, we're sitting here talking to you and, and it's so interesting hearing your perspective uh, on you know, social aspects and then thinking about these recordings from the 60s that were men interviewing men. What is the value of women as researchers or being more active participants in this kind of research? It is good. Uh, it would be nicer if uh, we had women researchers talking to women because then you get to talk about things that a man would not talk about because anything to do with woman, women, men, Papua New Guinean men will never talk about because that is, belongs to M. Something Blow All Mary. Yeah. So when you have women researchers talking to women uh, participants, then you end up having that space where women now can talk about so many things that they would otherwise not talk about in, if they were talking to a man researcher. So. Do you have a perspective on that, Matt? As a male researcher, like, are there times where you were like, oh, I wish I was a woman? No, not that. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, that's completely true. Yeah, for sure. You get, you are only have, you have access to certain domains, right? As mm -hmm. a, and that comes, that means you don't have access to other domains. And uh, mm -hmm. there are definitely, I know in my own work, I mean, you know, gender imbalance, you know, part of that is just sort of circumstantial, but a lot of it is the fact that I'm, a, you know, I'm a man and it's not always appropriate to be talking to women. When I did my own field work, I made sure that I had my brothers with me because I had male groups and female groups and in mixed groups. So when I went to the male groups, my, my brothers sat in with me. So that, that kind of, you know, yeah. Mm. And then when I went to the women's group, then they stayed out. I think mm. this goes to show in, in, in research, you know, Melanesian culture, mm. uh, the, the sensitivities and appropriateness uh, of researchers dealing with the people must always carry that. I mean, women to women 
you got to get a company for women or a, yeah. or a researcher. And the presence, like what Eileen's uh, discussing about the brothers involved. Because there are certain things that are taboo yeah. too. Well, mm -hmm. in terms, even the language, I mean, inappropriate language could yeah. also cause uh, issues in the community. And I think it speaks for like strong community-led projects as well, right? If you mm. can, you know, we think about researcher and the communities being researched, if, you know, certainly that's a, the, the, the traditional model, right? But if you've got people who, in, if the research is coming from the community, you could have men and women researchers from the community that you can train up and you can mm. do recordings and can go to the, can actually get involved. That's kind yeah. of exciting really here, that, you know, thinking about what's gone on with your field methods course and also your own PhD. That, mm. And you're interviewing people, you're interviewing people with your brothers, but also yourself, mm. and then you're being involved in this field methods course. Yeah. It's, it's exciting to have a woman who's such an active participant in recordings of synagogue. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Alin Bobone and Matt Carroll, for joining us on Toksave Culture Talks. Today's episode covered such a wide range of interesting topics, from how to run an online field methods course in linguistics, aspects of the Sinagoro language, and a fascinating discussion about gender and culture in the Rigo district. We would also like to acknowledge the contribution of Arthur Capel, Tom Dutton, and Malcolm Ross, whose recordings make up the AC1, TD1, and MR1 collections. Thank you to our listeners for joining us. If you would like to listen to the collection from this episode or find out more information about Paradisec, the work we do, and the online catalogue, you can visit our website at www.paradisec.org.au. We would like to acknowledge the support of the Australian Research Council's Centre of Excellence for the Dynamics of Language and the University of Sydney, the University of Melbourne, and the Australian National University.